If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Jungian and archetypal psychologist Stanton Marlin about alchemy, imagination, psychology, and non-ordinary states of consciousness. Stanton Marlin, PhD, is an American clinical psychologist, Jungian psychoanalyst, author, and educator. Stan has written extensively on alchemy and archetypal psychology, including The Black Sun, The Alchemy and Art of Darkness, C.G. Jung and the Alchemical Imagination, and Jung's Alchemical Philosophy. In our conversation, we explore the different approaches to the alchemical imagination taken by two of Stan's main teachers, Carl Jung and James Hillman, and how they informed his own approach to working with alchemical images and psychotherapy over 50 years of practice. Stan was also kind enough to sprinkle in some personal stories about his friend and mentor, James Hillman, as well as the early spiritual and psychedelic experiences that opened his awareness to the deeper mysteries of the soul. If you'd like to support this podcast and gain access to early release of episodes and the full podcast archives, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Stanton Marlin. Stan, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. My pleasure. Now, do you prefer Stanton or Stan? Either one, whatever's comfortable. Okay. Stan's not too informal? No. All right. Uh, where, where are you living and working these days? I live in Pittsburgh uh, in Squirrel Hill area. Um and I work uh, now out of my home office here, and I also am a supervisor for Duquesne University for their graduate students mm-hmm. and in a regional society of Jungian analysts. Uh, we have a program. I'm the president of the uh, Pittsburgh Society of Jungian Analysts here in Pittsburgh. Great. So you've still got a, a private practice? Yeah, private practice and a lot of my work now, though, and well, it's a lot of work is private practice, but I'm also have a number of deadlines for new books that are coming out and things like that. I just want to mention for people who are only listening to the audio, I've got a glimpse of uh, some of your home office there, and it looks like an alchemist's laboratory. It's really beautiful. I'm actually working on a book of photographs called The Magical House and Alchemical Library, because there's a lot of alchemical stuff throughout the library, and it's much larger. I mean, I could walk you through it, but that's uh, another another project. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, uh, having all of these objects in your, um, let's say, psychotherapy office, um, clinical space, did they actually come into the therapy at all? Like, do you find uh, your your patient or client noticing a certain object and that becomes a focus for the session? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes that's true. I mean, you know, typically analysis or classical Freudian analysis, one doesn't want a lot of objects around that bring forth the therapist's material. But uh, a lot of it has uh, powerful uh, impacts on people and in discussions of images and ideas that come up in the process is sometimes very interesting, just like a dream might. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like amongst all of these objects, what is it that stands out to you? It may uh, say more about the person who's doing the noticing or is attracted by the object than the object itself or, or your interest in the object, right? Yeah, it's whatever they're, what would catch them for whatever reason on any given occasion. And if it comes up, then thoughts about it or their feelings, associations, fantasies, sometimes dreams, uh, all that plays into the practice of working on the depths. Mm. I, mean, I find it uh, often surprising that uh, so many clinical spaces that I've I've had a glimpse into seems so sterile or there might, you know, very kind of minimal, like there might be one uh, painting or one little object on a table or something. And I always just thought if you're kind of a follower following in Jung's footsteps and have an interest in all of these esoteric and occult arts and traditions that uh, your life would probably be populated by a lot of the, the stuff of that, you know? Yeah, a lot of consulting rooms are different for different people. The classical ones are relatively, um, you know, don't have a lot of stuff in them, as you say. But for instance, if you look classically at Jung's library or consulting room or Freud's, even his uh, Vienna uh, uh, office, there's a lot of things and in London, lots of statues and objects and, you know, symbolic materials in Freud's library. And even in its consulting room, in in the original ones. Yeah, I think uh, years ago it might have been the New Yorker published a series of photographs of <coughs> of uh, Freud's consulting room, and uh, yeah, full of just really interesting artifacts from all over the world. Yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I visited there in uh, Vienna and London several years ago, and actually, the one of the books I'm working on now has photographs of that library with a lot of the objects in it. And it's a very interesting place. Oh, wonderful. Uh, just for listeners, I mean, how long have you been practicing? Oh, my God. Uh, uh, since 1975. Wow. Private, since 1970, working in a hospital and clinics and you know, directing a couple of clinics and then going into private practice in 75. Oh, fascinating. Um, I was born in 74. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I want to point people uh, who are interested in your early interest in alchemy uh, to a lecture that you gave at Pacifica a few years back. And so I'm going to provide a link to that in the description below. 
but I thought um, of anyone I've I've heard about or read that you seem to be the best person for me to talk to about the relationship between alchemy and psychology, um, both uh, Jung's reading of it and one of my heroes, James Hillman's reading of it. Uh, I haven't heard about anyone else who's delved so deeply into both of their work as well as uh, developing your own work. So I'd like to get into all that uh, for this episode and, and constrain it to that, um, taking a look at both of their approaches and uh, and also where you've taken it and where it's taking you still. Okay. So uh, maybe a good place to start. I mean, just personal interest, who came first for you? Was it uh, Jung or Hillman? Oh, Jung. Mm-hmm. who was my first uh, I didn't know Hillman when I first got involved I was I think 23 years old when I started analysis in New York and started to train in New York and I worked with uh, Ed Edinger when mm-hmm. he was uh, there in New York and um, uh, that was my beginning of analytic training I originally studied philosophy and then when I discovered Jung, I wanted to be an analyst and thought I needed to change um, fields. So um, I went into clinical psychology as a field um, and then got analytic training. And then after that, came back and did another doctorate in philosophy later on after I finished my analytic training. So it's been a combination of different things. Uh, and Jung uh, was the first one that really struck me. And Edinger used to give lectures on Wednesday nights on alchemy before he did his book, The Anatomy of the Psyche, which was one of his important books on alchemy. And I uh, used to listen to his lectures and um, got caught by the whole idea of the symbolic process of alchemical transformations hmm. um when did you become aware of hillman's work i wrote a little bit about it i'm not sure of the exact date but when i was in my training um i had read his book revisioning psychology And I really liked the book. It was a book I wish I could have written. It was so moving to me. And I thought, um, you know, uh, I'd really like to meet Hillman someday because if I um, really would like to deepen my understanding of his book, I thought I'd love to be in analysis with him. So one day after I had uh, graduated and I was at a a regional meeting, I walked out of the meeting and I was in a swimming pool and there was a guy in the swimming pool. I've talked about this in some other podcasts and I've actually written about it, but uh, Jim was in the pool swimming and he had come down to see about joining the interregional society. So we had a discussion in the pool and I told him about my interest in his work and uh, we got to be friends and I thought, you know, I'd really like to work with you. I wonder if I could had a dream about coming to lie down with you for a while. And he said, why not? And I had already finished my training, but then I went into analysis with with him for about 
five years and just picked up a lot on the archetypalist perspective, which is pretty much my perspective. It's a combination of classical Jung and archetypal psychology. And um, Hillman became very important to me. He became a friend, a colleague, a mentor. Uh, we did a lot of things together. And when he was writing his book on alchemy, he asked me to help him with it. And I helped edit it. And we worked on parts of it together. And um, so it's been a long-term relationship. And his work has become um, very important to my perspective. Uh, how significant was that, that you two met in a pool? I mean, it's kind of like the alchemical very, bath. Yes. Or yeah. I think I think of Jung talking about... Um, you know, getting into analysis is like uh, we get into the soup together. Absolutely. Yeah, very much. Just like the bath in the first picture of the, in the alchemical process that Jung uh, writes about. Um, but the other thing that was really interesting is that after I got to know Hillman and I started working with him, I had visited him. He was in Dallas for a while and I visited him and he had this little interesting library he had set up with a upper deck. And I said, you know, what, how did you create this or what interested you? And he said, well, when I grew up, um, I grew up in my grandfather's library in Philadelphia a lot. And he loved it. And it had a double decker library and he talked to me about it and really interested me. Well, that aside in the back of my mind, one day when I was moving, I had asked the realtor because I had a big library and I wanted to get a house. I could put the library in that was larger. And um, I told the realtor, if you ever find a place that has a big room for a library. So she took me to this house right away. And uh, as soon as I saw it, I loved it. I fell in love with it and I bid it on it. And I bought the house and turned it into a, a library with an upper deck and a private secret room and things like that. And one day, when I invited Jim to come out to the house and stay with me and give some lectures to our program here, he walked into the library and he said, is there a little room off to the side there? And I said, yeah, how did you know that? It's a secret room. And he said, I don't know. And we both went into it and he discovered from his family that the guy who built this house was a student of his grandfather's and grew up working in Hill Hillman's library in Philadelphia and had a replica library built in his house here in Pittsburgh. And that's the house I bought. So we both had the same library. And in a letter he sent me many years later, he just said that we share my grandfather's library. So it was a kind of synchronistic connection between my interest in him and finding myself living in a structure that was copied after his grandfather's home. And uh, I wrote about all that in a book called uh, Alchemical Psychologies, which was a, uh, an honorary program we did for Hillman here in Pittsburgh. And uh, in the introduction to it, I described what I just told you in a book called Archetypal Psychologies. Alchemical Psychologies or Archetypal Psychologies? Archetypal Psychologies. Okay, yeah, I was trying to track that one down. Is it still in print? It's uh, out of print, uh, but it's being reprinted by Texas A&M. 
but okay. it'll probably be a while before they reprint it. But there, I think some are available on uh, eBay or, you know, some of the bookstores have copies of it. Hmm. Um, well, going, getting into uh, Jung's view of alchemy and its uh, significance or benefit to psychology, um, you know, it's very curious. Like Jung wrote about how he thought that alchemy was a continuation of Christian mysticism, and he thought of his psychology as a continuation of alchemy. Now, can you help us to understand that uh, that progression or continuation as Jung saw it? Yeah, probably uh, just let me mention there's a good book on Christianity uh, and this issue in a way uh, by... Murray Stein. I don't remember the title offhand, but it's something, one of his books on Christianity, where he really talks about the linkages of Jung and Christianity, but also the limit of it in terms of the not full embodiment of the of the soul that alchemy brings about in the Robedo. And um, so while Jung was influenced by Christianity, he also saw limits uh, in it and tried to carry it alchemically forward, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me that Jung was really, uh, like he really uh, appreciated other symbol systems, like from, from the East. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think he was searching for a similar kind of symbol system for the West. And it seems to me that when he found alchemy, it, it kind of, um, resolved that for him or he found in that a library for the western person like uh did he at one time call it like a western yoga like a way to to bring into practice the the kind of promise of mystic christianity oh yeah in lots of different ways i think he writes a lot about that in several books he has a many books on alchemy Alchemical Psychology, Alchemical Studies, the Mysterium Conjunctionis, you know, which was his final, final book in which he brings a lot of it together. But when I, I visited his home, Jung's home, uh, his grandson had lived there and uh, uh, I went to look at his alchemical works there and then discovered in some of the alchemy books uh, things that he wrote alongside certain passages where he said, symbol. And he was realizing that the alchemists were not literal, simply trying to turn literal lead into gold, but the symbolically leaden personality into a golden one. And then he started to look into all the metaphoric qualities of the alchemists. And so there were many alchemists who were kind of literal, but many of them who had a, a very deep spiritual, soulful tradition of transformation. And a lot of the alchemical processes that Jung studied really dealt with something he was discovering in his work on the unconscious and individuation. So alchemy helped him amplify his understanding of psychology and enrich it. Yeah. I don't know if his um, thoughts about this evolved over time, but I think it's in um, Alchemy and Psychology where he he talks about how the alchemists were unconsciously projecting psychological processes onto the the literal material work that they were doing with these substances 
um, but they never became conscious of it as a kind of psychological process. Like, did his thoughts about that change over time? I think it did to some extent. I'm trying to remember where um, I think he did um, see that as true and was true, I think, in many, except that in some of the more profound symbolic expressions of alchemical work, there were certainly figures who spoke of psyche and soul linked to the materiality almost in a way prior to a Cartesian split between subject and object. So in speaking about it in some kind of primal wholeness, there was psychic reality present in what was talked about as literal. Mm. Like not making that break to where um, you're looking at the material substance or process as a, as a metaphor. Like you wouldn't say the silver is like the soul, but they might say something like silver is soul. Yes, something like that, yeah. And that linking, the, the linking of opposites, uh, one of the operations of alchemy is the conjunctio, uh, you know, bringing together of the opposites. And Jung was very interested in the whole process of the recognition of opposites and <clears throat> keeping the opposites both in consciousness, not letting one drop into the unconscious or the other. And that if you keep both the opposites in consciousness, it creates a tension and that tension produces a creative third. And that creative third transcends or embodies or deepens the two literal, more literal opposites that one might hold. Mm -hmm. So it had a demonic developmental possibility that came that led to an alchemical process. <clears throat> for Jung and for Edinger, a lot of times it was a more, uh, maybe more for Edinger in some respects, uh, he saw it in terms of individuation as a literal, historical, progressive one, where in Jim's work, it becomes more circular and not so literal or uh, laid out in terms of uh, the archetype of development. That's one aspect of it but there's also a kind of circular play, um, you know, that manifests itself in different ways and amplifies the richness and depth of life experience. What he calls yeah. the via longissimo, a lifelong process. Hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that strikes me about Edinger is he seemed to really love a good uh, structure or system. Um, he loved to lay things out as progressive uh, progressions, developments, um in contrast to Hillman, who <laughs> what would we call him like a deconstructionist or a post-structuralist? Like he he hated systems and those kind of Jungian diagrams of the yep. the ego and self and the <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, very, very I wrote to him a lot. We talked a lot about the postmodernist Derrida and deconstruction and things like that. I have a lot of letters from him where we discuss that. Um, actually, I'll be writing a, a new book I got asked to write uh, for spring publications called uh, Revisioning Alchemy, James Hillman and the Colors of the Soul. And oh, it'll great. be up on what he does in alchemical psychology and our work and exchanges on that. And, uh, you know, it's a very different kind of perspective. Although I, I would say that in talking with Jim, he often 
like in revisioning psychology, there's a point at which everything he says and comes up with, he also deconstructs at the end. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> so, was it the procession out the door? It's like, here are all these ideas. Like, let's send them out the door. I mean, it's great. Yeah. So he cleans it out. He deconstructs it. And it, it, it's very hard to put him into a box. And he never wanted uh, simple followers who simply imitated uh, him, the imitatio, um, you know. And so uh, he was open to lots of things. And there are ways he later on in life also picked back up on some value in Jung, even although he criticized him in some ways. We went to an international conference together with about seven people and were on stage talking about his connection to Jung, not just his differences from Jung. So um, mm-hmm. it's hard to... to right. Put I think there there's a lecture online. Uh, I think it's called In Defense of Jung and very late in Jim's life. I think it's uh, the time where he had broken his arm. Like I seem to remember his arm in a sling which is interesting for like a puer to um to not have one of his wings functioning and so he could stay on the ground and uh you know yeah. kind of come back around and, and kind of revision his relationship to jung yeah it's a good image yeah mm. uh before we get too far away from jung christianity alchemy that whole relationship there's a there's a quote that I pulled from Alchemy and Psychology because I just find it so mysterious. And I wondered if maybe you could help me understand it a little bit. So it's in the, I think the last part of Alchemy and Psychology, where he is talking about, you know, what I was saying before, where he thought the alchemist was largely unconscious of the um the inner outer relationship of the the work that they were doing. So he writes, had the alchemist succeeded in forming any concrete idea of his unconscious contents, he would have been obliged to recognize that he had taken the place of Christ, or to be more exact, that he, regarded not as ego but as self, had taken over the work of redeeming not man but God. He would then have had to recognize not only himself as the equivalent of Christ, but Christ as a symbol of the self. I mean, this is so typical of Jung. There's so much in yeah. that. Like that is like a, a lifetime of study to unpack that and all those interrelations. Yeah. Could you help me with that one? <laughs> yeah. Help me stand. Yeah. Um, well, let's see what I can do. <laughs> like alchemist taking the place of Christ. Right. Well, I, I think that one of the interesting, difficult things is that if one is going to separate from materiality, from subject and object, and realize that we project things, that psyche has a place and a lot of things are going on in psyche, we separate from literal materiality in some way. And so we recognize that things are going on in what we call inside. But what is the inside and what is the psyche when he moves from ego to self and from Christ to God, we're moving to a larger picture of the self, which although it's no longer that simple fusion of in and out that early alchemists had, but a reconstruction of an understanding of wholeness that he calls the self that goes beyond any simple understanding of psyche as an interior literal thought process. It becomes a much larger idea of the soul 
that can't be just separated into the simple categories of material or non-material. Oh, clear. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in like the, how uh, moving to the self could redeem the Christ in a way or, or to redeem the man in Christ or in me. I can understand that. But this, this idea of uh, not redeeming man, but God, that's yeah. the one that just throws me for a loop. Well, the whole idea of what's the relationship of uh, who, what is God for Jung, you know, what is, uh, is God a projection? Is God, um, you know, something literal? Um, is it something beyond literal and a, uh, a, a simple um, material reality? Uh, ultimately, I think for Jung, um, what's profoundly uh, important is that what we're talking about is the unknown. We can have symbols and we understand God and Christ and uh, the self and all can be understood in symbolic ways. But the core of the symbol ultimately in the unconscious is what's not known. So Jung was very, very open to the idea of the uh, mysteries to, to what is not known, to not something we can simply define or literalize. And so when we're talking about the unknown, we're talking about the unconscious, um, we're talking about these divine archetypes that the divine shows up in different cultures in different ways archetypally, but that each of them has an unknown core. And it's the mystery that he enters into that goes beyond the literal. Hmm. I, the way I was kind of thinking about it was um, like if we can take ourselves through a, or be taken into a, and participate in a process of transformation, that it um, it transforms the God image that we're projecting into the world, kind of like the stuff that he talks about in the answer to to job right how how god actually gets transformed through my transformation so that that would be the idea of god as a projection of the imago dei or the god image inside um we no longer see uh yahweh as the tyrannical distant father up in the sky or something like that but he would change into something maybe more whole or or yeah really and it's the way the archetypal world develops you might say in other words, you have certain archetype of God in different traditions at different times in history. And then as people live in relationship to it and, you know, develop it in the manner that you say the archetype can alter and we can have a transformed idea of the divine. And that's the way different religions sometimes develop and emanate or, you know, like Christianity might develop and emanate um, in different ways. What do you think about this? It's something um, that I've heard from some, I guess, Jungians and, and non-Jungians, but the, the idea that, and, you know, people like mystics, like Rudolf Steiner would be one, who felt that Christianity was like the the pinnacle of uh, uh, religious evolution, that it, that it could go no further, that that was the, the pinnacle. Um what do you think about that? Do you think that um, 
like Jung thought that maybe a new religion would develop over the next 500 years or so, and it would be built on the pillars of all the religions that had come before it. He didn't think that, but I've kind of heard that from maybe people like Edinger got to that where it was like holding Christianity up as this uh, end process of an evolution of religious consciousness or something. Some some people and some Jungians have held that that way, um, but I don't think that was true for Jung, as you mentioned. Uh, and I think that Jung was open to a lot of different traditions, even though for a while he was sent the West back to the West because he thought the East was not uh, easily understood or assimilable for Westerners. But ultimately, he writes some interesting things about the secret of the golden flower or about the Tibetan Book of the Dead and um, different traditions where he really incorporates a lot of that insight. And uh, I think the idea of the evolution of the divine is something that is part of a continuing and ongoing mysterious process. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't literalize it into one frame of reference that this is the right religion, this is the wrong religion, this is, you know, each one has different things that it offers forth to the soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he definitely had an appreciation for <clears throat> these other traditions, like you said, um, it's apparent in his writing about them, but it seems to me like almost like he had to stop himself from um, taking them on, like they were taboo for him. Like there was a certain kind of bias there in keeping things separate. Like this is for us Westerners, this is for them, and never shall between meet or intermingle. He wasn't yeah. a great uh, syncretist, maybe, but. I mean, do you think that was a limitation of his in terms of uh, how we're evolving as uh, as people and our relationship to the divine? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I mean, I think it is because a lot of the people who picked up on Eastern traditions did it in a way that necessarily didn't get into them in the way that the religion itself could promise for someone who was truly open to it without a filter a certain kind of filter or use of it to get a certain part of their personality activated that ne didn't necessarily speak to wholeness, but spoke to something that they were doing in a way that Jung saw as less, um, less rich, less deep uh, than the traditions that we grew up in. Uh, but I do agree that Jung in a way, um, uh, his comments, were critical of certain things that I think were worth criticizing, but they were not full enough or completely full enough to embrace and go on with it. Although he wrote a lot of very interesting stuff about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, for instance, and the importance of not literalizing it, for instance, just in terms of literal death uh, without understanding what death is all about. And the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead opens that question up in a very rich way if you enter into it in not just a um, traditional, literal way. Mm. Yeah, and of all people, I think Tim Leary picked up on that when he appropriated the Book of the Dead for like as a psychedelic guide through right. um, that kind of uh, ego death or um, e right. ego side, I think is the term that uh, I first heard through your work. 
Yeah, I think David Rosen might have used that word, uh, and I might have uh, used it from him. But I, I knew Tim Leary well. I stayed at Millbrook. Oh, for, no, really? Yeah. Ooh, I, tell me. Tell me more. <laughs> it'll be in the new book. There's a section on psychedelics in there. Um, I uh, met Tim and Richard Alpert, Ram Das, who became Ram Das, and Ralph Metzner when I was in college in my last year. Uh, and Millbrook was right up near there, and we had what was called the field period. And uh, I was very interested in psychedelics at the time and uh, in Eastern religions. I studied with John Brostowski at the New School, who was very into Tibetan Buddhism, and uh, got involved in it and uh, went to Bard. And then um, went up to visit Richard uh, during a field period and got interviewed by him and we had a great chat and he invited me to join the family there. So I did for a few months and went through their LSD experiences and wrote about those experiences. And um, they were a very important catalyst for me um, uh, and also a link to Jung because in that book, The Psychedelic Experience, they wrote about three people who they felt were broad enough to understand the things that psychedelic experiences evoked. One was William James, one was Carl Jung, and one was Lama Govinda and the Eastern traditions. And so that fascinated me. And ultimately, after I went through all my experiences with Tim, I talked to Tim about going to the University of Hawaii to study uh, Eastern philosophy and Buddhism. And he was all supportive of that when I left Millbrook. And then there's a story about what happened when I left Millbrook that I, I write about too, because I had an overwhelming experience of flashbacks and, you know, kind of Kundalini experiences and ended up in a Tibetan monastery talking to uh, uh, a Lama about, you know, what had happened and ended up studying I'm doing a master's degree in Buddhist philosophy and meeting Robert Aiken, who became a Zen master there, and Istani Roshi, who came to visit, and then in a Tibetan monastery in California with Tarthang Tulku. So there were a number of Eastern figures who had a, a large influence on me when I came back into Jungian thinking to utilize some of the insights I had from that in the work that I was doing. Uh, where do you write about these experiences? Some of them, are, I wrote a book, a couple books. Uh, one early one is The Black Sun, uh, The Alchemy and Art of Darkness. Mm -hmm. And I followed it with a number of essays and publications, but another book called, uh, which contains a number of my essays, including some of the Eastern ones, called C.G. Jung and the Alchemical Imagination, Passage, I think it's pathways or passages into the depths of psyche and soul, something like that. Mm. And then I wrote one on Jung's alchemical philosophy, um, uh, psyche and the mercurial play of image and idea. And those books do contain, you know, a lot of my current thought. And then I'm working on a, well, the new Hillman book, but the one that I've been working on that I put off that's probably a kind of capstone book, so to speak, is called The Philosopher's Stone, The Alchemy and Art of Illumination, 
And so we're in the black sun, I lean toward the darkness that was also light. And this one, I'm leaning toward illumination that's also darkness. Hmm. And so it has a lot of the Eastern Eastern and postmodern and Hillmanian perspectives in it. Hmm. Um, I, yeah, I do have the Black Sun, and I've been reading it. It's uh, it's very dense, so it's take. I'm a slow reader too. Uh, um, and then I just found uh, the 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 second book you talked about, where you contrast uh, like Hillman with Giegerich and and different thinkers. Um, the Alchemical Philosophy book. Uh, so I've been working my way through that too. But I really do love um, a, a good spiritual memoir, especially when it has, uh, uh, you know, psychedelic experience and non-ordinary states of consciousness and things like that. Right. There are a lot of early, like I've been thinking a lot about at the beginning of the new book I'm writing, I had a load of experiences that led to psychedelic experiences uh, that I, thinking about incorporating it, if I don't do it there, I don't know if I'll ever do it. But early on, when I was interested in philosophy, I went on an East uh, um, uh, European philosophy tour in France, in uh, uh, England, and in uh, Germany. And while I was there, I was very interested in the idea of transcendence. And one night, the first night, I had a sleep paralysis and experience of astral projection in which the soul comes out and is attached by a cord, floats around a room. And, and I, I was shocked. I didn't know anything about it. And one of the guys there from Sarah Lawrence, a philosophy professor, I told him about it in the morning. And he said, it sounds like you've got a touch of epilepsy, which really upset me. So I started <laughs> looking into epilepsy. And then I started reading about astral projection. And astral projection really described it much better and richer. And then I had a number of those experiences. And I learned a lot from astral projection. And it was a forerunner to uh, the psychedelic work and my Eastern work. Although one thing that happened with Edinger that was kind of interesting, I don't think I've written about it yet, I might have mentioned it somewhere, was that when I told him about my astral projection experiences, he said, are you sure that's the way to go? Um, you know, because splitting. No. <laughs> so I thought about it and I had a dream. I think it was sometime after he said that where the astral body started to emerge and out of the side of me came an arm, put its arm around it, held it back and brought it back into my chest. Huh. And so it didn't float around the room, but I had dealings with what, that manifestation was as anotherness of the self that was also a part of my sense of what the self might be about. Right. Like that arm might've been your inner Edinger. Yeah. Senex coming and going, Hey, Hey bud. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of, a little bit of a Senex. It's uh, maybe. Deadless just... saying, don't fly too close to the sun now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that's fascinating because, um, yeah, for me, I mean, my first kind of psychedelic experiences, I think, were dreams and um, and sleepwalking and strange experiences I had as a very young kid. But then when I got into my teenage years, um, I started to experiment with astral projection. And in Canada in the 70s and early 80s, you could get um, a cough syrup that had codeine in it. <laughs> and yeah. I discovered that when I had some of the 
codeine cough syrup and did deep breathing exercises, it was a lot easier for me to make the break from the body. Um, yeah, it's it's incredible, like what we're kind of drawn to intuitively in terms of exploring these things like that in itself, the the yearning for transcendence or or not even just transcendence, but um, moving into an, another world or something is almost archetypal in itself, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, and, you know, it's ultimately for Jim, this whole idea of this world and other world of spirit, which is, and soul, spirit, which is seen in terms of physical or metaphysical, where soul is more the imaginatio. And Hillman emphasizes the importance of the imagination that breaks with the traditions of literalizing and sticking with the importance of sticking with images and the daimon. So a lot of what I'm writing about now um, speaks to the process of the, the work of the daimon and following the daimon, connecting to the daimon, which is in another way a connection to the unconscious, but it's um, a very rich experience of the imagination, you could say, without thinking of the imagination as inner fantasy, but as access to the unknown richness of psyche and psyche world. Yeah. Um, the way I've been, I, I love to play with words, and it's one of the reasons why I love Hillman. Um, but the way I've been talking about imagination to try to help break that kind of Western concept of imagination as a, a kind of... Um, a function of of inner fantasy of, of mind games or make believe um, is breaking it apart as image nation that it's a, a nation of images so yeah. that's like a, the mundus imaginalis where it's another realm that we enter into where archetypal figures take form yes very very rich nicely said and um Jim writes about it a little bit, although I don't think he, he wrote this essay, and I think it's the last essay in, in the book I mentioned to you called The Azure Vault, and I do a reflection on The Azure Vault, in which he criticizes himself a little bit for this idea of sticking with the image, although because he's talking about moving out of the image into the, the connection with the larger, the larger phenomena of life in the world. But I don't think he really leaves the image. I, I write a little bit about it in the last chapter. I think oh. he was exploring that in a slightly different way. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.